Thank you, Jessica. Nice to see the sun this morning. A man was possessed by a demon and Jesus cast it out. The demon kept this man from speaking. He was mute. And then there were two blind men. Jesus supernaturally gave them sight. And then there was a woman that had, an, had been bleeding for 12 years. And she touched Jesus and the power went out from him and he took her sickness and she was healed. And then there was a 12-year-old girl that died from some kind of sickness and Jesus compassionately touched her hand and brought her back to life. These are some of the miracles that in Matthew's gospel he is treating us to. He has recorded them. And in chapters 8 and 9 in the Gospel of Matthew, we see a group of miracles. And then we also are treated to teachings by Jesus about what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ. And we're going to continue and finish chapter 9 this morning. We'll begin with verse 35. But there's a transition that takes place. And we're looking at the whole book of Matthew. So you've been with me from the beginning at the birth of the king. But Jesus has been ministering to the masses. He's he's been out among the masses. But now a transition takes place and he's going to focus on primarily ministering to those closest to him. We would know them as the disciples or the apostles. And he's going to draw them close and he's going to give them special teaching opportunities and attention because he has plans for their lives. And his plan for their lives is to equip them to do the works that he is doing to equip to equip them to expand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this king. It reminds me of the passage in Ephesians where the apostle is teaching the church and he says that God has given the church pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so Jesus is pastoring these disciples and he is equipping them. So there's a transition that will take place. But let's look at our text this morning. Chapter nine, beginning in verse thirty five to the end. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Look, notice what Jesus has been doing in verse 35. This is his ministry. He has been Going from village to village, town to town, proclaiming a message. And Matthew calls it the gospel. It's the message of the kingdom. Jesus is the king and he is ushering in the kingdom of heaven on earth. And he does this with this message. He has a burning desire to share the message that's known as good news. And he wants to share it with the people of the world. And he starts right there. In Jerusalem. As you know, 
Jesus didn't even begin his ministry till he was about 30 years old. And so for 30 years, he's been waiting patiently, waiting for the divine appointed time to be able to share with the world the good news. And now practically nonstop, he's taken this message to the people. It's interesting to me that as many things as he could accomplish on earth, that the thing that is most important to him is the message of good news. And so he proclaims it every opportunity he gets. What is exactly this message of good news? Well, to put it simply, that Jesus has come to reconcile sinners back to their creator God. If you think about just the gospel and the good news, you'll remember that in the garden, in Adam, man sinned and rebelled against God. Man was created in the image of God to bear his holy image and all of his wonderful characteristics and God endowed man with certain abilities, but he used those abilities against God to rebel against him. And therefore, he was cut off from the presence of a holy God. The good news is that God promised back in the garden that he was going to send a deliverer, a king, a messiah, somebody to restore and reconcile man back into the presence of God to restore that broken relationship. And Jesus is the king. He's the promised messiah to come. And so that's his good news. The kingdom is here and I have come to set you free. I've come to give you the knowledge and the resources that you need to be reconciled to your creator, God. Because man is in sin, he lives in bondage to that sin. You know it. I know it. Sin has has bonding properties to it. It's never enough. It, It lures you in. With its bait and its temptations. Because the farther you walk towards it, the more the lure gets. And the temptation is there. And the whole idea is to enslave you and to, to, to serve the purpose of evil. And Christ comes with this good news. That the moment, that the time, the divine appointment is here for man to be set free. Not just set free, but reconciled To their creator, God. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's establishing his kingdom by proclaiming the gospel. And he goes from village to village, mountaintop to mountaintop, valley to valley, person to person, heart to heart. And he is teaching them all about this reconciliation, teaching them all about how the son of man must suffer to give his life for you so that you can be born again and live eternally in the presence of God. The good news of how heaven exists and how the plan is for God's children to live there eternally. So he's proclaiming this from person to person. He's he's teaching people about this. Teaching is an instrumental gift or ability in God's kingdom. I think it's interesting that when you look at the gifts that God gives people, one of the gifts, of course, is teaching, because in order for the kingdom to work, in order for the kingdom to expand, in order for people in the kingdom to grow in the likeness of Christ, they have to be taught. And it's so important that God looks down at his church and he and he basically says, I'm going to gift Specific individuals within my family with the ability to teach so that the gospel goes forth, so that the word of God goes forth. Wouldn't it be nice to have the power 
to be able to actually endow people with powers to serve you in the way that you'd like to be served. And that's exactly what God does. The church is important here in the earth. And there are certain things that just have to take place in order for God's plan to transpire. And one of those things is that the teachings of the kingdom would go forth. And to see that this happens, God literally gives people not just natural abilities, but supernatural abilities to convey his word. So we have people in this church that are gifted by the Holy Spirit. In order to teach us what God says, to teach us how to get saved and then what it means to look like or what what it means to walk in that salvation. All that we've gained, all that we know come from somebody that has taught it to us, that has taken the time to study the word. And they're driven to do that. I can always tell uh, usually people that are gifted with teaching they don't just teach you the word of God. They'll teach you anything they can. That's the way they approach life. And it's going to come at you in a teaching mode. But God has specifically gifted people. So we're blessed. At New Covenant Fellowship to have those that are laboring down in the Sunday school classrooms doing what? Teaching our young ones the ways of God. Who stand up here and teach and across the road and teach Teach the ways of God because that's how the kingdom is rooted on this earth. By good, solid teaching of the word of God. That's what transforms our minds. We have one way of thinking and then we're exposed to the word of God. And it it sways us. And wins us to the kingdom. So Jesus is doing that which is very, very important. He's also teaching, but then he's performing miracles. He's performing miracles primarily because the miracles back up the importance of the teaching. What's what's really important is the message of the gospel, because that teaches you how to be saved. It teaches you how to escape the wrath of God. The miracles don't make you spiritually well. They make you physically well. But that's not a prerequisite for heaven. What is a prerequisite for heaven is that we would bow the knee, repent of our sin, confess Christ as God's mean of salvation. But in order for people to help people along and to believe the truth of that message, he performs supernatural things. It's kind of like exclamation point at the end. So the miracles there are, of course, to reveal his identity as a son of God. But also as an exclamation point to say this message that I have, this message that's burning in my gut to tell you is absolutely true. You must believe the message of the gospel. The world needs this message and the world needs the teachers and the proclaimers to hear, to say it so that they can hear it and be saved and then be sanctified. So if you're a believer this morning, you've already been saved, then the task now is to grow. The seed's been planted. You're in the field. You're in that that fertile ground of the kingdom of God. And God will use his word Sunday after Sunday, day after day to grow you. To look more and more like Christ, to conform to the image of Christ so that we talked about the fruits of the spirit this morning, that we'd be more loving, 
as you grow more gentle, more patient, more kind, more self-controlled. Are you more self-controlled this year as a believer than you were last year? It's the spirit's desire to grow these attributes in us, sanctifying and saving. I read a um, verse this week in my personal devotion in Psalm 119 that just really I shared it with the with the elders as well at our meeting. But it just really gripped my heart. And of course, Psalm 19 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And it goes he goes on and on about his love for God's word. He just trips over himself How he loves it. I treasure it. I long to see insights in it. I study it. I cry over it. I laugh over it. I take joy in it. He goes on and on. And then in in verse 32, he says, I run the paths or the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. He realizes, you know, sin tells us that our freedom is found in self-indulgence. That's where our freedom. That's the lie. This is where your happiness is found. This is where your freedom is found. And the psalmist realizes, no, God's word, God's laws, his commands. That's where my heart is free. And God set it free. And now I just take off. I run freely in his commands from one to the next. But you just even think about the Ten Commandments and how liberating that they are. Just take, for instance, lying. Thou shalt not lie. If you've told a lie, you know how enslaving it is because you told it and now you're anxious. You live with anxiety because you're afraid somebody might realize you lied to. Them. So you got to figure that out and then you might have to lie again to cover it up. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then you you, you lose your reputation and it makes life miserable, miserable. Just simply telling the truth. You're free. You did what's right. You said what's right. It was accurate. You're free. You have nothing to hide from. God's commands set us free. God's treasures set us free. And this is a part of what the kingdom is all about. God tells parents one of their responsibilities is teaching. We teach our children the ways of God. Teaching is instrumental. It's a must in the kingdom of God. The Great Commission, you go into all the world and do what? You teach them to observe, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Teaching. So Jesus taught wherever he went. He taught in the synagogues. He taught along the way. Later on, the Apostle Paul gives this advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and to teaching. See, you can't escape this idea of being taught if you are a disciple of Christ. Jesus, the living word, is proclaiming really his own message, his own gospel, because he is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the one that will die for sins. And he is the one that will rise to life, thereby testifying That the sacrifice was accepted by the heavenly father. Man can be free and forgiven from her sins. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who will believe. And so Jesus is excited. He has devoted his life to this message. That the gospel 
is salvation. Miracles confirm it. It's interesting in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, there are different people, groups that require different things. What does it take you to actually believe something? Well, the Apostle tells us in Corinthians that in order for the Jews to believe something, they needed signs. And in order for the Greeks to believe something, it had to make sense. They were big into reason and logic. If you're going to if you want me to believe you, then it's got to make sense up in here. Wisdom is very important. The Jews were more like, if you want me to believe that, you got to show me something supernatural. They're always looking for signs. And the apostle says in first Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So God gives the signs and you would think, you know, have you ever thought I'm witnessing to this person or a friend of mine or a family member? And I just wish they would believe, but they're not quite embracing the gospel. God, if you would just do a miracle, then it would be undeniable. They couldn't deny it. And obviously they would believe. And here's Jesus and he's preaching the gospel. He's backing it with supernatural acts. Some are coming into the kingdom, but not all. Because a hard heart can even not just deny the truth, but also deny the supernatural. That's how sinful our hearts are. Or you can present the gospel very logically and very reasonably to somebody and show them the progress of redemption. And it makes sense to you because you've been enlightened, but they don't get it. A darkened heart prevents us from seeing what's real and from believing what's real. The only way that we really can get saved is through an intervention from God. We would just as soon stay in our bondage and stay in our lostness. We don't know any better. So Jesus comes, he's preaching and is teaching. So how does anybody get saved if this is the case? Because God is a God of great compassion. Look at verse 36. So Jesus is looking out at the masses. He sees the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The triune God is a God of great compassion. It's interesting to me that one of the people, I hear this verse quoted all the time. And it's that it comes from the prophet Jeremiah who is really the most least likely person that would pen these words because his ministry was during a season where people were so hard hearted. He preached and preached and proclaimed God's word. He warned them of the doom to come if they did not repent and they did not repent. But he says in his book of Lamentations, just to give you an idea of what kind of life he lived, a life of lament. But he says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. I mean, everything here on earth, everything that could go wrong is going wrong. But because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His eyes were on the love of God. He realized the compassion of God was endless. His focus wasn't on the sin of man, but what God can do. And because of God's loving nature, there's always hope. You know, man will never tire of sinning. 
And God will never tire of loving. Jesus looks out on this people that really are in rebellion against him and he has compassion. And he sees them as harassed and helpless. That word harassed means uh, battered and mangled. Weak. Hungry. They're sheep without a shepherd. And he's moved. He's moved with compassion. And the word compassion has to do with suffering with your fellow man. You, you feel their pain. The Greek takes it even farther. That Greek word for compassion there is, is felt in the bowels. So it's a feeling of compassion that he actually physically experiences. And perhaps you have witnessed a tragedy of some kind, or maybe somebody just brought you some terrible, terrible news. And I've seen it before. Sometimes when people hear tragic news, they actually will hold their stomachs. Because they're so hurt over that news that it almost makes them feel sick to their stomach. It's in their bowels. This is what Jesus feels as he looks at the masses. The great example of this is... um, uh, in the movie Saving Private Ryan, when the, the mother is at the kitchen sink washing the dishes and way out in out west. And she sees a dust cloud because the driveway is real long. It's a dust cloud. And finally, it comes into vision. It's a vehicle that's coming down a driveway. She recognizes it's from the military. She knows what that that means in World War Two. If you get a visit from the military, it means someone has died. And sure enough, they get out of the vehicle and she walks out to the front door and opens the door and she just holds her stomach and almost collapses. That Because she feels so deeply what has just happened. She's, there's great loss. And, and that's what Jesus is feeling. This great loss and compassion. He feels the pain that is out in the world and really feels it, I think, even more deeply than we feel it ourselves. Because it's so clear to him, but we get all confused about how bad sin is or how bad is it really to rebel against God or not live in his commands and not praise him and worship him in a way that he deserves. We're confused and fuzzy about it, but it's really clear to him. And so he sees it for what it is and it racks his body. Can you imagine trying to take all the love and compassion in God and just put it in one human body? No wonder Jesus was was doubled over the human body. Can it handle all of that? So he's feeling it on the inside. It also reminded me a little bit just to tell on myself and my kids just a little bit. But uh, I don't know if you've experienced this as a parent. Sometimes we feel things on the inside before they happen on the outside. And if our kids disobeyed. We'd sit them down, we'd let them know what they did wrong, and they knew that Mr. Spanky Strap was going to be the result. And sometimes while lecturing or explaining the moral reason behind things, they'd shiver. Before, because they know what was to come. Was that inside reaction before the outside. Puritan Thomas Watson says, we may force our Lord to punish us. But we will never have to force him to love us because that is his nature. And Jesus is just 
filled with love. He's taken the gospel message out. And he's also feeling the pain of those that are being harassed, those that are ensnared, those that are in bondage. They're worn out. They're exhausted. That's what that word means. I remember thinking about this passage before I came to Christ, before God opened my eyes. If you were to ask me, how was I doing? I would say, fine. I'm doing fine. I didn't really know any better, but I thought this is just, yeah, there's, there's aches and pains. There's a lot of hardship in the world, but that's just the way it goes. But other than that, I'm fine. I guess I'm as fine as the rest of the people out here. Jesus probably would just shake his head at that attitude. And yet, that's the attitude or the mindset of a lot of people. They don't realize. They just feel harassed and think that's the way life is supposed to be. Now, Israel had shepherds. Jesus said they're like sheep without a shepherd. They had shepherds. They had the scribes and the Pharisees that were given the responsibility of, of teaching them and bringing them up in the ways of the Lord. But they were terrible shepherds. It had no compassion. As a matter of fact, rather than opening the doors to the kingdom, they shut the doors to the kingdom because often they would just put obstacles in your way of getting to God. You need to do this to get to heaven. Then you need to do this and have you done this. And if you've forgotten about this and they're just heaping up all these commands, Jesus puts it like this. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to hear, hard to bear. And lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's not compassion. And then he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. No compassion, just coldness. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Harassed, exhausted. That's pretty much describes about every American these days, doesn't it? By looking at the news, social media, by reading the headlines and being fed all of the different things that are going on, it's just absolutely exhausting to know all the things that are going on in our country. And I think that with all the division, with all the anger that's going on, people feel harassed. And I don't know how we've done it. But somehow, I think in this day and age, we have managed to create a society and a system where everybody just feels like they're not getting their way. I don't know how it's possible. The Republicans have the majority in the government. The Republicans feel harassed like they're not getting their way. The Democrats aren't getting their way. The independents aren't getting. Nobody is content. Nobody sees that anything is happening for their good. And so there's this division and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of restlessness. Anything. But unity, everybody has personalized what their own America should look like and they're not getting it. It's not really the we the people anymore. Everybody has their own idea of how America should be run. And of course, it's personalized. It needs to be run to fit my own personal needs. And, and we're not getting those. And so everybody's at odds. Everybody's against everybody. Harassed. It's like there's no safe party. There's no safe group. There's no safe community. There's no safe politicians. Nothing safe anymore. It's just fatigue. Got to hear about this again. 
You can't trust anybody. Got all these scandals. People going to jail. It's the same way in Jesus's day. Politics are politics. Power's power. So what was the message that Jesus had? The gospel. The real rest comes when your heart is right with God. It's not that politics don't matter. They do matter. They affect us. But the real peace and the real change and the new outlook comes when your heart is right with God. And the only way our hearts can be right with God is by placing our trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And making him our king. Jesus has compassion. And what does he do with this compassion? When he looks out and he sees the sheep. And then he sees the metaphor changes from sheep that are helpless and harassed to opportunity for a harvest. The people in that day understood shepherding. The people in that day, we live in agrarian society. We understand harvest. And he looks at all those hurting people and he sees an opportunity for people to be told the gospel that they might come into the kingdom as well. And that's what he says in verse 37. He's speaking to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So you see the metaphor just changed there. He sees hurting souls, but he sees ripe souls. A lot of times I wonder today when you think about all the advances we've had and all the different opportunities that are there for people and all the wealth and the blessings and the riches that we have. How can you reach anybody with the gospel message? Because it's hard to show people their true need for Christ today. When you have everything you think you need in your house or in your garage or the work or in your bank account, then what could you possibly need? And I love this passage because it's just it's it just reminds us that when it gets right down to it, That we might think we're okay. From heaven's view, our hearts are exhausted. And they're weary. And this world is not all there is. And that weary heart is an open door for the gospel message. For the peace that we need. Sin is a burden. And just like Pilgrim's Progress, it gets tiresome trying to tote it all over the place. The gospel still sets free. It's still good news. And don't be deceived that people are okay without it. We're not. From heaven's view, there are heavy hearts. And so be encouraged by this passage that the harvest is still ripe for those to come in. Potential saints is what Jesus says. I think perhaps the most striking thing to me about this passage, here's Jesus feeling feeling the compassion of the brokenness of people and then seeing this great opportunity where it's time for the harvest. You know, harvest, you got this window of opportunity and you blow it. Harvest is gone. He sees the time and he doesn't tell his disciples, get out in the field. Go. We're missing the opportunity. How interesting is it and profound is it that he says, pray. Pray. It's time to to reap the harvest and you want us to, to not go but pray. 
Look how important prayer is in the kingdom. Don't just launch out. Pray for workers. God's got a plan. Pray for workers. God would love for you to talk to him so he could answer that prayer. Pray for workers. To go. So the farmer is praying for workers for the harvest to be taken in. It's a plentiful harvest. That means it's 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 a big it's a big load to be taken in. But pray, pray, prayer comes before the sending. Have you ever talked to somebody and you presented this opportunity and it seems like a no brainer and you got to act on it quick and then they say, let me pray about that. That's, in essence, what Jesus is saying. Pray. We, we don't have enough people yet. Let's pray. And then it will happen. So, as we conclude in this passage, passage, Jesus has moved with the reality of the immediate needs of the people. And he's equipping his disciples and he's passing on his heart and his compassion to them. Because it's always been the plan that the people of God that are brought into the kingdom will do the work of the ministry. Will continue to spread the gospel and continue to teach the disciples what it means to live out the freedom that Christ has won for us. And we're told to pray. Don't panic. Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't get overwhelmed. Pray. And notice what. Jesus has us praying for. Not the unsaved in this passage. He doesn't say pray for the unsaved. He says pray for workers. In other words, pray for the saved. The laborers from among the saints of God. That's where our prayer needs to be in this case. Pray for the saints of God. To have a heart and a willingness to be sent. Verse 5 in chapter 10, just to give you a sneak peek. These 12 Jesus sent out. You ever think that God has us pray for things only to discover that really we're the ones that we're praying for? God, send them out. I'm praying, send, send the laborers out. Oh, I'm the laborer? That's what happens here. They prayed. And they were sent. Just a simple passage, a simple message. The king has come. And I pray that it will grip your heart. I pray that if you have not embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior. That this would be the divine moment and the call for you to do that this morning. And I pray for those of us that have. It's a reminder for us to continue to give our lives to Christ. He deserves it. And our freedom comes By running in the paths of his commands. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.